Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Oh, come on. Good morning. Good morning. Let's be awake there. Let's be awake. I know the wind is blowing. I know it's a little colder outside. We can handle the cold, right? And God is worth coming out to worship him this morning as we handle the cold this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you could take them out to Acts chapter 10, I'd appreciate that. You can find the message outline right out there at the center doors at the ministry counter right there, which is one side's the bulletin and the other side's the message outline. You know, when I, when I look back at my life and the times that I've gone through difficulties, I would run to God in prayer, not to pray our Father who art in heaven, but I come and I pray, Lord, please help me. Lord, help me during that time. And, and I began to think, why is it that a crisis or out of control spin of life that comes in my life drives us to our knees and we go to the throne of God and we cry out, Lord, help me during those times. Why do we do it during those times? It seems like there should be other stimulus to pray, right? It seems like we have like two stimulus to pray. There's either food. We, it seems like we've been programmed, especially if you've been brought up in a Christian home, that if you go to a restaurant before you eat your food, you, do, you bow your head and you give thanks to God for food, right? We do that. And that seems like that's a stimulus to pray. The other, other stimulus to pray is crisis. We go through a crisis. And it causes me to ask all kinds of questions about prayer. And one of them, should there be other stimulus to pray? Should we have other stimuli to pray? And should it be that, God, I want to serve you, I want to live for you, I want to do something great for God. And God, I fall to my knees, and that causes me to fall to my knees. And I say, God, use me. Use me. I'm available for you. And, and as I thought about this, other questions came. It says, to what degree does prayer really matter? To what does it really matter? Does it really matter that we pray? Should we pray? And how does prayer affect my heart? And how does prayer affect the times, places, and circumstances around me? Well, those questions are all answered in Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles there, we're in a series called Unstoppable. We're going through the book of Acts, and today we're in a real exciting passage of Acts chapter 10 because it's all about change in church. Change in church. And we know that churches love to change, right? Churches love to change, don't they? Wow, churches love to change, don't they? No, they don't. Come on, churches don't love to change. They don't love to change. Hey, they hate to change. The culture changes about every three to five years. Churches change about every 30 to 40 years, oftentimes kicking and screaming and doing it. They don't like to change. Churches don't like to change. They like to do the same thing over and over and over again, yet we still have to stay relevant in our times because if we don't, we become obsolete. And yet, but with the wisdom to know what not to change. There's things that we can't change, right? There's things that we can't change. We know there are some things in terms of functions and why we exist that we can't change. If we change those, we become something different, completely different that God expects us to be or intends us to be. But there are forms. The forms that help the functions to be realized, those forms can change, and they have to change as times change. Otherwise, we become irrelevant. The church of this time here in Acts chapter 10 was, was in Jerusalem. It was Jewish. The church was completely Jewish. That was about to change. And we notice from this passage that when we pray, if you have your outline, that we have three things that relate to prayer. And the first one is this, that God prepares people in circumstances. He prepares people in circumstance, or God changes people in circumstances. Let's begin reading in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion and what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. 
one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him and feared. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had, come, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants, a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Let's begin looking at a map here. Can we look at this map? This map is, is the nation of Israel. Is Israel right here. It's about the size of the state of New Jersey. Everything that's happening right now in the, in the book of Acts is happening right here in Jerusalem. Right here is where everything's happening. It's in the hill country there, uh, what happens there. But this is, this is the place where the temple was. This is the place where Jesus performed many miracles. This was the place that Jesus preached many great sermons. This is the place where Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives here and came down on that Palm Sunday, and people laid down those palm branches and screamed, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. This is the place where Jesus was crucified the following Friday. This is the place where Jesus was buried. This is the place where Jesus was raised from the dead and that third day from the dead. It was right outside, right outside here of Jerusalem that Jesus at the Mount of Olives descended up into heaven. And before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, he says, I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem. He says, because just in a little while, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to give you power, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they stayed there in Acts chapter 2. And this is where the Holy Spirit came on, on them. In this Jewish community, their church began, and Peter stood up and he preached this powerful message right there. And 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. It happened all right there in Jerusalem. But then in, through, in Acts chapter 8, through persecution, their church began to go outside of Jerusalem, and it goes up to Samaria, up in these areas right here in Judea, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we talked about how Saul came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior, how he got saved. And all this is happening. But all that's about to change right now. The other two cities that I want to point out are here in Caesarea, up here. It's out here on the coast. It's a beautiful city on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it has the aqueduct is there. It's the remnants of the old Roman architecture is there. The Hippodrome, the racetrack. The, the great royal buildings, the palace on the sea, they're all right there, and it's right here on the sea, and this is one of the cities that's in our story today. The other one, you come down here, is Joppa. Joppa's on the sea, also in the Mediterranean. It's about 30 miles south of Caesarea here, and we find a man by the name of Peter is there in Joppa. So, so we begin there. If we could twist our map, we could kind of twist the map, we could say, okay, here's the land, and that's the Mediterranean Sea. So all you are in the Mediterranean Sea, okay? all you out in the Mediterranean Sea. And up here would be Caesarea. And down here, 30 miles to the south, would be Joppa. Okay, if we could look at our map down here now, we would see that. And what we find out in Caesarea was a man we're introduced by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. It was a Roman group of six centuries of 600 soldiers. And each one of those centuries had a centurion who was over 100 soldiers. And, and Cornelius was one of those men who was a highly responsible physician. But the Bible also tells us, in addition to that, that he was a God-fearer. And what it means is a technical term that refers to Gentiles who had embraced the, the religion of the Jews. And he was one of those men. 
him, he was a God-fearer. His family was a God-fearer. And the Bible says he gave generously to those in need. He helped those that were poor, that needed, and he gave money to that. It also says that he prayed regularly to God. And, and there were, but there were obviously some blanks in his faith, like, who is Jesus? He didn't understand that. And he probably had all kinds of questions. And we can make some assumptions here about what his prayers were by the prayers that had sent it up to God, by the answer that God gave back to him, that when God sent an angel. And he probably were praying something like this, Lord, I, I love you. I have followed you. My family follows you. But I don't understand about who this Jesus is. And I don't understand what to do with him in my life. And God was going to answer that prayer that he was asking. And so my, my question is, do prayers really matter to God? Do they, do they really matter? When we pray, God changes people and circumstances around us, and we can expect that for him to do that. But it, it says here that his prayers were, came up as a memorial offering uh, before God. The scriptures talk about that in the book of Revelation in a couple places, that our prayers ascend to the throne room of God. It's also pictured that way in the Old Testament. Listen, our prayers matter to God. As, as, as with our communion with him, it matters to God. As we come before him and we pray, it really matters. And Cornelius is praying, and God is about to do something very special here. He sends an angel, and the angel tells him that your prayers have been received, and now you're to send someone to Joppa to go find a man by the name of Peter, and he's living in a house by a man called Simon the Tanner. Okay, so he's to go there. So let me ask you a question. God sent an angel. Why didn't God just send the angel to talk to Cornelius and tell him about Jesus? That Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God, and he died on the cross for our sins. And so Cornelius can come to know Jesus as his Savior. Why didn't he do that? If he would have done that, he saved about 40 verses in the story, wouldn't he? He would have said 40 verses. We've got to get around this. But he didn't. Instead, what God did, he, God said to an angel, I want you to go speak to Cornelius and tell Cornelius what to do so he can tell somebody else what to do and so, so they can go and tell Peter what to do. In the meantime, God is telling Peter what to do so Peter can come down and complete the story of Cornelius. That's what happened in these 40 verses we're going to read about. But why did God not just use an angel to go and tell him? You know the answer to that. The same reason God doesn't use an angel to go and tell your next-door neighbor about Jesus, right? The same reason God didn't use an angel that day you came to know Jesus Christ, your Savior. He didn't use an angel to use to tell you. He uses a messenger. And that messenger is usually a, a person, a person, a family member, a friend, who comes and shares with you that missing piece that you need in your life to understand about Jesus and accept him as your Savior. And the first thing we learn here in this passage, we can expect God to change or prepare people and circumstances around us. And God does that all the time. Before we ever start, as we start praying, God starts preparing people and circumstances. The second thing that relates to prayer is this. God changes our thinking to his thinking. He changes our thinking to his thinking. But also, God not only changes our thinking, he changes our heart to his heart. That's what he wants. Our hearts to become like his. Our thinking to become like his thinking. Cornelius takes two of his servants, sends them along with another man that was attending him, and he sends them 30 miles south to, to Joppa, down in the seacoast highway down there. And meanwhile in Joppa, God is speaking to Peter, and it's the same Peter you read about in the Gospels, the same Peter who denied Jesus, the same Peter when was asked, who do people say that I am? And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The same Peter, the same Peter that preached that 
great sermon in the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people came to know Christ as their Savior. The same Peter that he went to the temple with another disciple uh, to pray, and there was a man that was crippled, and he asked him for some money, and Peter says, you know, silver and gold I do not have, what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. This is the same Peter right here. But Peter is in Joppa. He's at the home of Simon the Tanner. And it gets me to ask questions. Like, why is he there? Why is Peter there? He's one of the early leaders of the church. A very powerful man at that time. Very influential man. But he's here at the Tanner's house. Let me say, Tanner's, is one, they worked with dead animals. It wasn't where you wanted to be. They, they cut off the hides of animals. A number of different ways you would cut that hair from that hide. But none of them smell good, right? None of them smell good. So he's there, and tanners weren't really popular people back then. And if you're somebody, you invite them over to your house if you're a tanner, people usually make excuses like, I got to clean out my sock drawer. I can't make it there that night because you didn't want to go there. Because they dealt with dead animals. And Jews would have a real hard time being around someone that deals with dead animals. And the aromas and the smells would keep you away too. So Peter is there. The Bible doesn't tell us why. Why would he be off alone in Joppa at a tanner's house? Was he in hiding? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's just a thought. Why was he there? I like to ask those questions. But now it's the next day, and it's around noon. Peter goes to the rooftop to pray. That was a custom in the Jewish community at that time. They had certain times they would pray. And he went to the rooftop and pray. And while he was praying, he got hungry, the Bible says. Have you ever been praying and got hungry? Anybody? I mean, if you haven't, you probably haven't prayed long enough, right? Well, he's praying... And he gets hungry, and the Bible tells us that they're preparing food for him. But he has this vision while he's in a trance from God. And in this vision, he sees this sheet descending down from heaven. It's being lowered by the four corners of the sheet. And in that sheet were animals and reptiles and birds. And Peter is watching all this happen in this vision, in this trance, and this sheet coming down. And then he hears a voice that says, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Now, that's the favorite verse of any hunter in the church and the Christians. Get up and kill and eat right here. And it's caught his attention, though, Peter's attention right then when he hears this, because coming down from that sheep was animals that, according to Old Testament law, they weren't, they weren't allowed to eat. So he responds very quickly, and he says this in verse 14. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But he's about ready to learn a huge lesson here in this passage, what God is trying to teach him. God responds in verse 15 and 16 and says this, The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Why do you think it happened three times? Do I have to tell you any more, bit more about Peter? You understand who Peter is, right? But do I have to tell you any, any bit more about our own lives as we walk with God? That we're very stubborn people, right? And we're slow to learn. And many times we're set in our ways. And we believe things and set because I've been taught as a child, been taught by my parents. And God is trying to teach us something new. We don't want to grasp it because we're holding on to those old things that we've learned. Even if the Word of God says something contrary, and God has to kind of give it to us again and again and again till we get it, till we understand it till we understand the truth and the principle behind what God is trying to teach us. And that's what's happening here. This was so unusual. This had to rock his world. This had to kind of shake his theology, what was just being shared here in this trance, in this vision that he had here. He said, you want me to do what with these animals? I don't even want to touch them. And when we pray, God changes our thinking to his thinking. Have you ever been so angry at a person 
and you pray, and maybe your prayer is a little exaggerated, and you kind of say, God, you know you and I are mad at him for what he did, and now I got to ask you lovingly to rain down your wrath and maybe send some lightning bolts their way so they're going to understand that I'm right and they're wrong, right? We, we kind of pray that, and we're very angry with somebody, and then finally we continue to pray, and God kind of softens our heart, and he changes our thinking and changes our prayers many times. Or maybe with your spouse, you have a disagreement with your spouse, and you go in the other room, and maybe you're praying, and say, man, God, why can't she understand or he understand the truth? Why can't they get it? And in the meantime, as you're praying, God has you to get it, that you're wrong. Have you ever had that happen? Or am I the only one? That happens sometimes to you, where you get that. See, that's what prayer is. It's not us telling God what to do. It's not us telling him what to do. It's in this conversation that we're having with God that we come and, and vows to declare into the majesty and glory of God. It comes to us that we're, we're worshiping him in adoration. We're lifting up our hearts and minds, confessing our sin, lifting up our petitions, our requests before God, and we're praying. And that's what we're supposed to do. But, but at the same time, God is speaking to us. He's talking to us. God is through the Holy Spirit, is revealing through the Scriptures, revealing application through the Word of God, and He's guiding us and directing us to His will, to understand His will, to lead us, that we make right decisions, good decisions, decisions according to His will. That's what prayer does. Not that I come and I demand, God, you do what I want, but I come to prayer and God starts to change my thinking according to His thinking. That's where application really takes place, where sincerely with the tender heart coming before Him. And that's why it's so important that we pray, that we read the Word of God and we go to God and we pray because God changes our thinking, that no longer it's what I think, but God is what you think that matters. Amen? Isn't that what matters, what God thinks? And Peter was praying, and God was changing his life. He was changing his thinking. Absolutely amazing what is happening right here. And what is happening is the trance is over. Peter is now wondering and trying to understand everything that happened. And three men, the three men sent by Cornelius now arrives at the gate. And a 30-mile journey they come. And while Peter was thinking about this vision, the Spirit, Spirit says to him in verse 19, let's read verse 19 and 20. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter goes downstairs. The introductions take place. Peter asks, why have you come? And they begin to tell him that everything the angel said to Cornelius. So the next day, he's going to leave for Caesarea. But before we go on to the next section of the story, I want to make sure you understand what happened here, just what happened theologically, because it's really, really important what happened right here. At this time, the, the church that was Jewish, it was Jewish, completely Jewish, the church was at this time. While everything that looked outside of the Jewish community, everything outside of the Jewish community was considered unclean. Can't touch it, stay away with it, don't let it pollute you, get away from it, run from it, all those kind of things. Those walls just came down right then at this passage. They came down. That's what God was doing. And the church that was Jew and the church now becomes Jew and Gentile. Right at that moment. That's what he was revealing to Peter. It's a really, really big deal what is going on. And for many of the Jews who looked at the Gentiles, that they were those dirty dogs, I don't want anything to do with them, now they become brothers and sisters in the bride of Christ. It's a huge deal what is happening right here in this passage, what he's revealing to Peter. And, and, and many times we look at it, if we look at 21 centuries now from Acts chapter 10, those walls have come down. And I believe the church, the church is red, yellow, black, and white, we're all precious in his sight. You know that story. You know that song, right? 
well precious in his sight. When I read this passage, while the racial and ethnic boundaries have come down, and I believe they have come down, contrary to what many believe, I believe they've come down, because the grace of God is not discriminatory. God is not prejudiced. He's not prejudiced. I wonder if there are times, though, in our church today, where we erected our own walls. And those walls may not be based on ethnicity or racial differences, but are just our own prejudices that we have in our own lives. I remember years ago, I don't even remember, many of you might be too young to remember, a man by the name of Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy was a serial killer, and they finally caught him. He had his trial, and his, his waiting trial was for the death sentence. And while he was waiting there in prison, he responded to the grace of God and accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior. And I remember many, many years ago that uh, James Dobson interviewed Ted Bundy. And there were some Christians who said that that can't happen. There's no way that can happen because he can't accept Christ and all of a sudden have all this forgiven. He's got to pay the price. He's got to pay the price. They would say that the grace of God can't forgive that, it, that his sin was too great. Listen, all of our sins was too great, right? When we come before the throne, all of our sins are too great. And God, by his grace, forgive us when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. That wall, if we have that wall, it has to come down. We can't erect walls. Is it possible in our own lives that we have a wall that we have erected, and on, on the other side of that wall, we've placed people who we believe have committed certain sins. We say, no, you're on the other side of the wall. I, I, while all sin is, is bad, right? We believe all sin is bad. But all of us, we say, there's some sins that we kind of elevate to other levels, don't we? Let's be honest with ourselves. That maybe you say, man, I got these top five sins that I think the worst of all sins, that maybe you say in your life, I can never see myself committing those sins. The people who do are terrible people. But there are these other sins that I, that I think that aren't so bad that I'm kind of tolerant of, and those sins that you're tolerant of are the ones that you're most vulnerable to. So we pick and choose sins. If we're honest with ourselves, we kind of pick and choose, this is a major sin, this is not so major, or anything like that. Let me, let me share. No one has ever come up to me as a pastor and said, Pastor, could you really preach a message on gluttony? I never had anybody say that because we're all right with that sin, aren't we? No one has ever come up to me and say, Pastor, could you preach a message where, where how people are not supposed to murmur and complain and just follow the leadership in the church? No one has ever come up and asked me to preach a message on that. Yet when we read the Old Testament, that sin was one of the main sins that brought the judgment of God upon the people repeatedly. But no one has ever asked me to preach a message on that. They asked me many times to preach about their five top sins in their own hearts and minds that they think that people ought to hear. But is it possible in us picking and choosing of our own sins that we say that are out there, that we say, here's a wall, and those people who commit those sins, there's no hope for them. We may not say it, but we kind of believe that. We read the papers or see anything. Those people who do those things that are outside of that wall of those top five sins, those top sins that I have in my mind, there's no hope for those people. We say that. We may not say it out loud. Please listen, there are no walls. There can't be any walls. We can't erect walls. The grace of God is not limited by race or ethnicity or the classification of sins. It can't be. No one is beyond saving. No one has committed so many sins that the grace of God cannot reach them. No matter how many times they've committed those major sins that you maybe have in your own heart and mind, you say, this is a major sin. If they've done it a hundred times, and each one of those sins a hundred times, the grace of God still can forgive them. Amen? And we've got to believe that. 
We can't erect walls and say, when somebody comes in, oh, you know what they've done? There's no way. There's no hope. No, there's hope for everyone out there through Jesus Christ. Amen? So when Peter prayed, God changed his heart. And when we pray, we want God to do the same thing, right? We want him to change our heart. God, don't let me keep thinking and believing the same way that I did before. But as I'm reading the word of God and I'm praying, change my heart. Change my thinking according to your thinking. And according to your heart is what we want, want right? So Peter came down and he met them. And, and uh, they went there to Caesarea, north to Caesarea. And they got to Cornelius' house. Cornelius comes out and he falls on his knees before Peter. And Peter grabs him and gets him up and says, I'm a man just like you. And don't you love that? It's a beautiful picture that this was a man of God, an apostle, used mightily for God. He grabs Cornelius and says, man, I'm just a man like you. He defected, deflected all the glory to God, gave God all the glory. Don't miss that beautiful picture. Don't miss that humility that Peter had right then and there, that we see that. The third thing that relates to prayer, God strategically works out his sovereign will and plan that God does that. Peter went on to explain in Cornelius in verse 28. Let's, let's look at this. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with the Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not carry any, any man, that I should not call any man impure or unclean. God showed Peter that? When did God show Peter that? I mean, God showed him in a vision there weren't any unclean animals. But Peter got the lesson. He understood what God was trying to show him. There aren't any unclean people outside of the scope of God's grace. That's what God was showing him. It wasn't about the animals. He was saying, through those animals, Peter, there's not any unclean people out the scope of my grace that I cannot reach. And Peter got the lesson. He understood what God was showing him right then and there. And so Peter went on to give him the message, Cornelius, the message to kind of fill in the blanks, to answer his prayer, to tell him who Jesus is. We find that in verses 34 through 43, some powerful verses here. Let's read them. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message of God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Verse 41. It was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him, believes in Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That was the message of the first century. It remains the message still today. That unless you have Jesus, you have nothing. That unless you have Jesus, understand that you have nothing. And by the way, many people would look at Cornelius and they would look at his life and say, man, this guy's really got it together, man. Look at his life. You, you, you pray on a regular basis. You give. You give to the poor. You help people. You're respected by those people who know you. But listen, if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. 
And that's what Jesus, that's what he was telling them. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So the message of Peter to that man, to Cornelius that day, here's Jesus, Cornelius, and you need him. Without him, you have nothing. And Cornelius accepted Christ as his Savior, and then he was baptized. But I want to tie all this together and see what it means for us right now. I want you to really listen to me. We can expect as we pray that God, expect God to work in our lives. But it's fascinating to me that what God did here in the first century. And when God took somebody and they was praying and they needed to hear, and at the same time God took somebody who was praying and they needed to share and he brought them together. Isn't that amazing? In the first century, that's what God did there. Someone who was praying, praying who needed to hear and someone who was praying and needed to share and God brings them together. He does that. That's what God does amazing. And I was wondering, thinking about that, does God still do that today? That maybe you live in, all of us probably live here in the Rochelle area, someplace around here. Maybe not in Rochelle, outside of Rochelle, but one of the towns. And wherever you live in that area, that maybe you live in a subdivision or whatever, and that person who lives down the street from you, maybe they live across the street, maybe next door behind you, that God has strategically placed them there so that you can share the message of Jesus with them. You think God still does that today like he did with Peter and Cornelius? Think he still does that? Or maybe as maybe you get on a plane or someplace that has assigned seats and you get on that, that maybe that person sitting right next to you is a person that needs to hear what you have to share. And maybe as you're at that assigned seat and you're sitting at that seat 10B, and they're sitting at 10A, that you're there right now, and that, that their presence next to you is actually an answer of perhaps to someone's prayer, a family member's prayer, that you're that answer to that prayer, that they've been praying for a long time, that, man, I wish someone would come along and share Jesus with them, and God assigned you strategically right there of a person that can share with someone who needs to hear, and you're an answer to other people's prayer, that you would share Jesus Christ with them. You ever think about that? that you might be an answer to somebody's prayer? When we understand this, when we really get this, when we pray, God changes our heart and our thinking to his thinking. When we really understand this, that God is really actively working and doing these things. And when we pray, we can expect God to change people and circumstances around us. And when we pray, we can strategically, he works out his sovereign will and his plan in our lives. That's what God wants to do. And when we look at that, when God does those things, we say, wow, what a coincidence. What a coincidence, it all worked together. Don't we say that? No, we don't say that. We don't say what a coincidence. We say the power of God is at work. God is amazing, and he's at work. There's no such coincidence with God. God makes it happen. He brought Cornelius and Peter together. It wasn't a chance. God planned it, just like as God plans things in your life to bring you together. And when we understand that, that changes everything. It really does. It really does change everything in our life. That life doesn't become about climbing ladders and collecting things. That life becomes like fitting into the strategic plan of God. That's why we're here, to fit in God's plan. And God has strategically placed us in certain places right where you're at right now, according to his plan. So every morning we wake up, we say, God, I surrender. I'm yours. I'm yours today, Lord. Help me to recognize people and circumstances around me and, and give me the wisdom and grace and boldness to act upon it today. Help me to be those people you want me to be. Help me to see those opportunities. Show me, Lord. Guide me, lead me, direct me what you want me to do. And God accomplishes his will in using his word and answering our prayers. And what God does, he brings those people who need to hear 
And he connects with them with people who need to share. And the kingdom is expanded by God's grace, by God's sovereign will, by God's plan, how he brings it together and he works it together. God doesn't choose to use angels to share about Jesus. He chooses us, his privileged ambassadors, his privileged servants. We get the opportunity to take this wonderful, great message of Jesus to others. Let's not squander that opportunity. In the early church, they looked at it as an honor that I get to share Jesus. It's an honor. And I'll do this with my life. It's an honor to share Jesus Christ with others. It's a privilege to share Jesus. And somehow, in today's church, we've kind of lost that. The people don't look at it as an honor. They look at it as a last resort. Let's rise back up and say it's an honor and a privilege to share Jesus, no matter what the cost. Because God, in his strategic plan, has brought us in contact and given us opportunity to share with people who desperately need to hear. Amen? Let's not squander the opportunity. Let's be obedient to God. When we pray, and we're praying for those individuals, people also praying for family members of theirs, that as they're out there in the world, and we cross paths, that maybe we'll answer to people's prayers. God, I pray that someone who knows Jesus could just run into them and share. And you might be that prayer that God uses, that person that God uses to answer their prayer. Let us be obedient every place we go. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come, and we praise you and thank you because you are a good, gracious God, and you love us. And as Lord, we look at the scriptures, we see over and over how you work through people, places, and things, and you work around us. And you change our thinking to your thinking. You did it with Peter. You did it with Peter, how you changed their thinking. They, they were so used to and so accustomed that everything was unclean except the Jewish community. And you open up his heart and mind by telling him about animals, that you're really talking about people. Help us, Lord, as we read the word of God and we pray that we wouldn't have our minds closed to you. But, Lord, we allow our minds to be open to the word of God and give you the permission to change our thinking to your thinking, to change our hearts to your, th to your heart. Let us not harden our hearts. Let us keep our hearts soft to you. Help us to be people who read the word of God. And, the Lord, we pray, looking for answers, but not looking for our answers looking for your answers, looking for your direction, your guidance. You're helping us to decide what to do, not us on our own. But Lord, we want to do your will. And Lord, as you bring us into opportunities with people who desperately need to hear, and Lord, as we meet them, because we desperately need to share the good news of Jesus, Lord, help us to open our eyes and to realize those opportunities. Help us to be bold in those opportunities. Help us to share with love and your grace and your mercy, Lord. Give us the words, Holy Spirit, we yield to you. We may not have shared in the past, Lord, but help us to change. Change our thinking, change our hearts. To be your heart, to be your heart and your thinking. That, Lord, we look for those wonderful opportunities and realize it's a privilege and honor to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. It's a privilege and honor to do that. Help us, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to be ready to share Help us to look at people who need to hear it to be used by you and realize, Lord, that you want to change us. You want to make us more like Jesus. Lord, we praise you and thank you. And this morning, Lord, we want to surrender our hearts to you and ask you to guide us. Lord, help us to be the people you want us to be, not the people we, we are, but the people you want us to be. And, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.